You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. There's a timelessness to human interest in what has been called the end times or the end of days. And this interest shows up in our movies, in TV shows, and there have even been large religious movements that have focused almost exclusively on prophecy and understanding the end times. And some of us are old enough to remember the Y2K phenomenon when people speculated and wondered whether the new millennium would bring on the end of days. And there are even lots of Christians who try to read the tea leaves of geopolitics for signs of the end times. And this fascination is, is also true across cultures. But we're in a moment right now that feels like a scene out of one of those movies on the end times. If I told you two years ago that the world would be rocked by a global pandemic, that it would claim the lives of over half a million Americans in a year, and that the only way that you could safely visit with your friends and family would be outside at a distance of six feet. You would have thought I was crazy or watching too much of The Walking Dead. But here we are. And I rehearse our current situation because it matters for how we hear the scriptures today. As we turn the pages of scripture to the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel, we're opening up to an apocalypse. Apocalypse literally means revelation. And it is particularly related to a form of writing in which the hidden truths of the world are revealed in the context of cataclysmic events. Apocalyptic literature of old usually involved symbolic language and extreme images or visions from a heavenly being. And this literature carries with it a sense of the end. But the particular relevance of Mark 13 is that we are enduring our own cataclysmic events. We are circumstantially much better prepared to appreciate this apocalyptic message as a result. The pandemic makes connecting with our loved ones hard. But at the same time, it also makes connecting with the word of Jesus easier. We are being confronted with the fragility of our lives in this world, suffering and loss, life and death. However, you may be more primed than ever in your life to understand what Jesus has to teach us in this text about following him. In this passage, which is utterly unique in Mark's gospel, the evangelist is telling the world about the arrival of Jesus how he turns the world as we know it upside down, what this means for us now, and what this means for us in the future. And for the rest of our time today, I want, I want us to take a look at the warning of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. So let's look at our first point where we see the warning of Jesus. This text is Mark's account of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's the last extended teaching of Jesus, recorded in this gospel anyway. And this is how it goes down. As Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the temple, 
the Lord notices the admiring, awestruck appearance of his followers. They are looking at the temple complex, and they're overwhelmed by its grandeur. Much like visitors to New York City gaze up at the skyscrapers mesmerized. And Jesus observes their response to this amazing building, and this leads to an important pastoral moment with his disciples. Jesus shocks them by telling them that this stunning structure that they admire and reverence so much will soon be destroyed. We have to remember that the temple represented God's presence with his people. The temple was central in their religious and cultural lives as Jews. So when they heard Jesus say that the temple would be destroyed, they are shaken and disoriented. And soon after this brief exchange, Jesus and his disciples wind up sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And four of his disciples follow up with him about the destruction of the temple. Keep in mind that the Mount of Olives was a historic location of world-changing events in the history of Israel. Take note of Zechariah 14, for example, which tells us that the Mount of Olives was the expected location for major apocalyptic events foretold in the Old Testament. So it's a textual trigger. And in this follow-up with his disciples, in the rest of this passage, Mark gives us an account of what Jesus had to share with his disciples as they overlooked the temple from the Mount of Olives. What Jesus gives by way of follow-up is a series of warnings and a primary admonition. The first part of this passage is designed to warn the disciples against three spiritual dangers. The first danger is deception by false saviors. The second is that of distraction by world turmoil. And the third is persecutions that can shipwreck faith. So let's touch on these briefly. In verses 5 through 6, Jesus warns the disciples of being led astray by false saviors. Here, he's not just talking about people who literally claim to be the Messiah, though these folks have come onto the scene at different times. He's talking about false authorities that make claims on your life for religious devotion. This is to say that there are people and cultural forces that lay claim to your worship and devotion. This has broader application to politics and what you might call partisan liturgies. And to be clear, no change in administration can produce a change in your heart in this regard. But what does it look like to be led astray by this false savior? You pay homage and pledge faithfulness to your party. You offer your sacrifices for the party. You make your evangelistic appeals to those outside of your party. And for those who don't convert, it's judgment. Money makes these same religious claims. This even happens in certain unhealthy relationships. In essence, these all say to us, I am he. I am your savior. I will protect you. I will give you meaning and fulfillment. I will save you. And Jesus is saying, don't let any of these lead you astray. In verses 7 through 8, Jesus warns the disciples of being distracted by world turmoil. 
This distraction is not difficult to understand, and the danger has only deepened from Jesus' day with email and media. We only need to think of our doom-scrolling on social media and the mental and emotional bandwidth we give to the news cycle. We can see the distracting nature of it because we find ourselves more deeply formed by the daily news than the good news. We form media addictions to, to clicks and likes, and we don't realize that we have become the product as our attention is being sold for money. If you don't believe me, try going a week without your phone. Try a day. You will be like Tolkien's Gollum, aching and longing for your precious phone. Obviously, I'm not anti-technology or anti-media. I just want us to hear the warning of Jesus as it relates to distraction. It's worth planning for a more disciplined engagement with media for the sake of of hearing and obeying the word of Jesus. In verses 9 and following, Jesus warns the disciples of persecutions that can shipwreck faith. And I won't belabor this. I simply want to point out that Jesus sets an expectation for us. We can expect that when we follow Jesus, he doesn't save us from all of our earthly troubles, He saves us in and through all our earthly troubles. He causes our troubles to serve us and and change us and, and bless us. We can expect opposition to our mission. We must come to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. And a most beautiful truth in this section is this. Though these Jewish disciples were undoubtedly heartbroken and devastated at the idea that the temple, God's dwelling, and their cultural center being destroyed. Jesus tells them that they can expect the presence of God's Spirit as they face opposition to the mission. And finally, Jesus tells them that they can expect to be hated by all for his namesake, regardless of how thoughtful or winsome we try to be. Jesus says that disciples should expect this, but they should also expect that enduring faith, enduring discipleship will be crowned with salvation. This is the big picture warning of Jesus that all who would follow him must take to heart. But we must also consider the coming of Jesus, which brings us to our second point, the coming of Jesus. In the first 31 verses of this apocalyptic text, Jesus addresses his disciples with warning, and he describes the future events that will eventually come to pass in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. However, In verse 32, there is a change of subject indicated in the Greek text as Jesus turns his attention to that day and that hour, which in early Christian language was recognized as shorthand for the parousia, or the the coming of Jesus, the the day of his return to fully establish his kingdom. And in verses 32 and following, we see Jesus call his disciples to stay awake, to to stay awake. And what that means uh, is to be present and aware, to be alive. And he uses this image of staying awake 
rather than being found asleep. Uh, and on the one hand, it's very accessible imagery. When you are awake, you see what is really going on, and you are able to act accordingly. When you're asleep, things are happening around you, and you have no awareness, and you're unresponsive or disengaged. On the other hand, the idea of staying awake can sound sort of vague. But whenever Jesus presents a teaching that is somewhat opaque, it's on purpose. Whenever he omits precision or clarity, it's intentional. Why? Because he wants us to wrestle with what it means for us in our own moment, with all of its realities and challenges and opportunities. The image is intended to search you, to see if there is any grievous way in you, and to lead you in the way everlasting. It's always a call to decide if you are serious about understanding, serious about doing the difficult inner work, serious about being spiritually ready, serious about following Jesus. And as we wrestle with what it means for us to stay awake, to be present and aware, I think it leads us to a few urgent considerations. First, I think Jesus is urging us to stay awake to ourselves. We can take this as a call to self-awareness, to be present to who we actually are, with all the good and the evil, with all of our feelings, thoughts, and behavior patterns. He wants us to be awake to where we are, uh, where we're healthy, where we're dysfunctional. He wants us to be awake to our spiritual situation, where our faith is resting, where our confidence lies, where our motivations are grounded. Many of us need to wake up because we don't know ourselves. We think we do, and our self-assessment of our spiritual situation is yet off the mark. I think this call to to stay awake is a call to self-knowledge. But second, I think Jesus is urging us to stay awake to God, His presence, power, and holiness. His promises, his, His warnings and admonitions. He wants us to maintain an awareness of who God really is according to the vision he has portrayed for his disciples. And this dovetails in important ways with self-awareness, being awake to yourself. Because once we gain greater self-awareness and we encounter the frightening things about ourselves, our failure to measure up even to our own moral standards, the appalling thoughts that move through our heads, the rage resentments, entitlements, and the pride. It's at that point that awareness of God means everything because he comes home to us as the precious remedy for all that ails us and afflicts us. It's at this point that the manifold excellencies of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his current priestly ministry His love, the transforming presence of the Spirit, everything that God is and everything that God has done comes home to us and we lay hold of joy. We lay hold of peace and we taste real life and flourishing. Awake to self, awake to God. And finally, 
I think Jesus is urging us to stay awake to our neighbors. Awake to their dignity and the fullness of their humanity. Awake to their sufferings, struggles, and needs. Awake to their questions, concerns, fears, hopes, and dreams. Awake to their potential if the grace of God were to get a hold of their lives. And I think he calls us to be awake to self, to God, and to neighbor. Because this is what leads us to readiness for his return to rule and judge. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is coming. He will return. And he wants us to stay ready, to stay awake like the porter at the door, so that when he returns, we can receive his affirmation and enter into his joy. In 1964, the legendary soul singer Sam Cooke released his iconic song, A Change Is Gonna Come. And this appeared on his album, Ain't That Good News. In the midst of the civil rights struggle and all of the social turmoil and violence that was unfolding in American life, Sam Cooke gave us one of the most enduring songs written by a black artist in the last 60 years. The lyrics detail his sufferings and struggles, but there is a continual return to the hope-filled tagline of the song that says, It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. And Mark is telling us in this passage, I know we face struggles and turmoil, violence and despair in this life. I know we face personal sufferings and losses. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come, and that change is named Jesus. Ain't that good news? Those who maintain this confidence will stay awake, living the life of faith, hope, and love. So let's Make this our focus, that we would be a community that stays awake. Awake to who we are, honestly dealing and wrestling with what's going on inside of our hearts. And also awake to God, turning our broken hearts to Him, knowing that He's full of grace, full of goodness. He's ready to restore. He's ready to receive our repentance and change us. And awake to our neighbors, filled with the hope that Jesus will come and with him that change is going to come. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.